One of the great debates of our age is regarding standards. We live in a pluralistic society that doesn't want any standards. Everyone wants to be able to do whatever is right in their own eyes, and no one wants anyone saying that what anything is doing is right or wrong. We often hear folks say, who am I to claim that something is right or wrong for someone else? And this kind of thinking has even made its way into modern churches. In fact, the mere fact that all of these different churches teaching mutually exclusive doctrines, even regarding issues of salvation and worship, each of these things in and of themselves demonstrate the same kind of mindset. And not a single church out there wants anyone, anywhere, to declare that anything they're doing or that we're doing is wrong. In fact, what is most often said is, who are you to declare that what we do or not do in our congregation is right or wrong? And so we're told from all sides that there is no standard. We're not allowed to set a standard. And yet, in the midst of all of that, I remember what it says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 16. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 16, as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, what he said was, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Paul said that there is a rule. There is a ruler, that is, there is a standard of measure by which we can know what is right and what is wrong, and that we as Christians are to live by that rule. His church is to live by that rule. And so despite what our society says to us, we need to find out what that rule is. We need to find out what the standard is. And the first thing that we as Christians need to recognize is that when we are asking this question, the question for us is not what is the standard, but who is the standard. Because in fact, what we need to understand is that God Himself is our standard. Look in Leviticus chapter 18. From the very beginning, as God dealt with His old covenant people, as He was bringing forth His laws and telling them how they ought to live. In Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 1, He said, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. And then He would go through a litany of laws. What was His reasoning for which they should obey these laws? Because He is the Lord their God. He is the standard. What He says goes. And this was His defense. This was His argument. Do what I say. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, 1 and 2, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What was the standard of holiness? God Himself was the standard of, our, of their holiness. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, demonstrates that that's the same for us today, even under the New Covenant. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, Peter said, "...but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy." For I am holy. 
Who is the standard? God is our standard. And we need to look to Him to rule and govern our lives. I'd like for us to notice three reasons which allow God to be our standard. The very first thing is that God is the Creator of all things. And because God created it, because He made it, it's just logical. He is the standard. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. The greatest claim to God's authority as the standard. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made this universe and everything in it, including us. And as such, He is the master of this house and the standard of all who are in it. Look in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4 says, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. God is the builder of this house. He created it. And He is the standard. He is the master of His house which He built. Regarding the church, remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. In 1 Timothy 3.15, If I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That is His house. The church is also His house, speaking in a different sense. But it's His. He made it. He created it. He is the standard. He is the master. Secondly, we recognize that God is the giver of all things. Look in James chapter 1. And verse 17, in James chapter 1 and verse 17, we learn that everything that we have here, we did not come up with all this on our own. All of our abilities, all of our resources, all of our opportunities, we haven't come up with these things. But God, because of His power, has given us these things. In James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God has given us these things. And because God is the giver of all things, God has the right to be the standard for how we use these things. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. As Solomon talks about growing old and dying in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, he writes, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Our very Spirit, our own identity, the inner man that makes us who we are, that is the real us, not just this flesh, but the part of us that lives and endures through eternity. Where did it come from? came from God. He gave that to us. And because He is the giver, He's the standard. And has the right to be the standard. He's the master. And can tell us how to live and use what He has given us. Regarding the church, 
Remember that it was God who is the giver of the sacrifice that buys us and redeems us and brings us into His church. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, one of the most famous verses of the entire Bible, John chapter 3 and verse 16, the Scripture says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God was the giver of that sacrifice. And because God is the giver, He has the right to be the standard of all those who take part in that sacrifice. The spotless lamb that was shed for us, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. But in addition to God being the Creator, God being the Giver, we also recognize that God is the Owner of all things. We must not get confused that God has given us all these things and now they're ours and they're not His. God has given us all things as a stewardship. Why do you think so often God used, Jesus used, excuse me, that Jesus used parables of stewardship? Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. The master brings in a couple stewards, gives one five, gives one two, gives one one. And then they were supposed to use those things and then the master was going to come back and they were going to give account. In Luke chapter 12, it talks about the master returning to find the faithful or unfaithful steward. Why did he do that? Because he wanted us to understand that we are stewards. God has given us all of this, but He is still the owner. We have control, but in the end, we have to give account to Him for all the things that He has given us. Ecclesiastes 12.7, what did it say? When we die, the flesh goes down to the dust as it was. The Spirit returns to God who gave it. Why? Because it was His. He gets to now do with it what He wants. It's up to Him. He is in control. He is the owner. We've had use of it. He has given us rules for how to use it, but in the end, it returns to Him and we'll give account to Him because He is the owner. Regarding the church, Remember what we read in 1 Timothy 3.15? Whose house is it? It's His house. And we've got to conduct ourselves in His house, in His way. You may have noticed that when I go off on meetings, typically, I don't take Marita and the kids with me. You know why? Because it's too much stress. We stay in somebody else's house and we don't know what their rules are and what Tess and Ethan and Ryan are allowed to do. We don't know what they'll let them do. They don't know what we'll let them do. It's just, it's stressful. That's tough. Why? Because when I'm in their house, how am I supposed to behave? The way they want me to. You know what? At my house, my kids can jump all over the furniture. I don't care. It's probably because when I was a kid, I got yelled at more for jumping on furniture than anything else. And so we've decided, you know what, it's furniture, it's fun, they can jump on it. But they won't certainly do it at your house. They do it at your house and I'll kill them. Because I know, you probably have a rule that says no kids jumping on your couch, right? Of course you do. That's what most people do. Your house, you're in control. God's house, who's in control? God is. He's the owner. And it doesn't matter what our rules would be if it were our house. It's not our house. It's God's house. And because He is the owner of all things, He's the standard. And because God is the Creator and the Giver and the owner of all things, He has the right to tell us what to do. To tell us 
how to live, to declare that something is right or something is wrong, and to judge us for not living according to His standard. And our understandings, our think-sos, our feelings are insignificant because God is greater than we are. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, the Scripture says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is greater than us. And His thoughts and ways are not based upon our thoughts and ways. And so it's no wonder that James, in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, James chapter 1 and verse 19, James says to us, My beloved brethren, James 1.19, let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, verse 21, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the works, this one will be blessed in what he does. No wonder James tells us, you'll be swift to hear. Slow to speak and slow to anger. Why? Because our anger, our speaking against God will not produce righteousness. Rather, our doing what God wants, that is what will give us the blessing of righteousness. God is the standard. But, of course, that leads us to wonder. How are we supposed to know what to do? Okay, God is our standard, but frankly, I have never been in God's visible presence. I've never got to sit down face to face with God and have a conversation and find out how He wants me to live. So how am I supposed to know? Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, Paul described his work as an evangelist and an apostle. He said, however we, speaking of the apostles, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yet the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. See what Paul says? How can you know what's in my mind? The only way you can know it is if I tell you. Paul says that's the same thing with God. We can't know what's in His mind. We can't know what is His standard unless He tells us. Paul says that's exactly what He's done. 
He's told us His mind. He has revealed His mind. But how? Look in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, the Scripture says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. How has He revealed His mind? Through Jesus. How can we know God? By knowing Jesus. How can we know God's standard? By knowing the standard of Jesus. No wonder Jesus told His apostles in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 6. Thomas had said, Lord, we don't know where You're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And He goes on to explain that. How are we going to come to the Father? How do we know the Father? He answers the question in verse 8. Philip said to Him, Lord, show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known Me, Philip? He who has seen Me has seen the Father. So how do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in Me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. If we know Jesus, we know God, we know the standard. But once again, we've got a problem. Of course, here, Philip and Thomas saw Jesus but we have not seen Jesus. But that shouldn't surprise us because we remember what Jesus said to Thomas in John 20 and verse 29. In John 20 and verse 29, Jesus had said to Thomas, Thomas, because you have seen Me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus knew there would be those who hadn't seen Him but had believed, but how are we supposed to do that? We're going to know the standard by knowing God. We're going to know God by knowing Jesus, but we haven't seen Jesus. Well, let's notice what Jesus said in John 17, 20 and 21. In John 17, 20 and 21, on the night Jesus was, uh, was betrayed, as He prayed there with His disciples in John 17, 20 and 21, He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word. You see that? That they may all be one. As you, Father, and Me... And I in you that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. How are those who didn't see Jesus going to believe? Through the word of the apostles. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 7. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, Jesus, before He ascended, said to the disciples, Acts 1, 7, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in His own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. How are we going to know Jesus? Because of witnesses. 
We're going to be able to hear their words and their testimony, and we'll be able to believe. But think about who these witnesses are. These are fallible men. They were goofing up things all the time. They had all kinds of problems. But notice what Jesus had said there in Acts 1, 7 and 8. These witnesses would be empowered by the Spirit. John 14, 26. As He was preparing the disciples for His departure, He said to them, let's begin in verse 25 of John 14, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. These apostles were left behind as witnesses. But they would not be by themselves just trying to remember all that Jesus had said. They wouldn't be by themselves trying to figure out what was truth and what wasn't. They were going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was going to guide them. And so they would reveal the truth. But again, what about us? There's nowhere in the Scripture that it's ever promised that God would empower all Christians as He empowered the apostles to the degree that He did this. So what about us? Well, that's very interesting. If we go back to 1 Corinthians, remember we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 earlier where Paul pointed out that God had revealed His mind through the Spirit. Paul was talking about this very process. But notice, when Paul was telling the Corinthians how to live and how they ought to work as a church, he did not say to them that the Spirit would reveal miraculously to them everything. Notice what he said to them in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, he said, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. Notice 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet, or spiritual, 1 Corinthians 14.37, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord God. God communicated through His Son. His Son left behind witnesses empowered by the Spirit. And what have they done? They wrote it down. They wrote down the revelation so that we could know it. Look in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul explains the process. Now, this is very important. Please note how important this is. This was written during a time when everyone who believes in God and in Jesus recognized that miracles were taking place. That the Holy Spirit was granting gifts of prophecy and healing and revelation. But even in this time when God was actively doing that, and we can all agree on that, The Scripture points out that it was only a very few that actually received revelation. The great majority never received revelation from God to know how to live. Notice what Paul says, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Paul said, "...how by revelation He made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand." 
my insight into the mystery, my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. God had never intended for everyone to receive miraculous revelation, even in the time when miraculous revelation was being given. It had always been His intent in all times that to the prophets, to the apostles, they would receive the miraculous revelation. They would write it down. We could read it. And guess what? We can understand. And not only can we understand, we're commanded to understand. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17, the Scripture says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There's our command. Don't be ignorant. Understand God's will. We can get into this. We can understand it. Yes, I know. If you're still using a King James Version, which is fine, but you're probably going to have a hard time. It's a little bit more difficult. We don't talk like that. But there are versions that are written that we can understand. And when we read a version that's translated in our language, we can understand it. And we can do it. First Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has revealed His mind to us. Here's the standard. We just need to live by it. God has the right to tell us what is right and what is wrong. You and I don't have the right to say what is right and what is wrong, but we do have the right to go to the Scripture. And if something's not going in accord with that, we can declare, God has said it's wrong. Oh, but you're not the judge. I wasn't being the judge. I was just telling you, this is what God has said. Can you imagine driving down the road with someone and they're flying at 85 miles an hour on an interstate that has a 75, 70 mile an hour speed limit? And you say to them, you better watch it, you're going to get a ticket. You don't have any right to judge me! That's silly, isn't it? Nobody's being the judge, we're just saying, here's what the law is. 70 miles an hour, you're going 85, you're not careful, you're going to get a ticket. We're not being the judges. When we tell folks, look, here's what the Scripture says. If you're not doing that, be careful, you'll be condemned. There's no judgment there. Not in the sense of us being the judge. All that is is telling folks what the judge has already said. Now, before we end this study... I think it's important, having noticed what the proper standard is, that we very quickly notice some false standards. Because despite the fact that so many people today will declare, oh, we go just by the Bible. That's the God's standard for our lives. When you actually get into questioning and talking and, and listening to what causes people to do things, we'll find out that oftentimes we have other standards. And we just need to make sure that we're not following standards such as this one, personal feelings. You can call it opinions, you can call it emotions, you can call it preconceived ideas, I don't care which term you want to use, but we need to understand that my personal feelings are not the standard. My likes and dislikes, my wants and desires are not the standard. Remember what it says in Proverbs 14:12? In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, 
The Scripture says, Proverbs 14.12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I can follow my feelings, I can follow my wants, but the Scripture says that the way that is, seems right within a man ends in death. Personal experiences. That's not a standard either, and yet it's one that's being used over and over and over again today. So many people have gone through so many kinds of experiences. Who am I to argue with what you have experienced? I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know what you felt. I don't know what happened in that church building. I don't know what happened when that preacher touched you on the head. I don't know. I don't know what happened in your private prayer closet and any voices that you might have heard. I don't know. And I'm not going to argue with that. All I know is, is the Bible says your experiences, no matter how powerful and how profound, are not the standard. Let me show you Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 21. Matthew 7 and 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, done many wonders in Your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew You. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. Did these folks have experiences? They most certainly did. These folks, their experiences were so profound, they thought they had prophesied. In the name of God. They thought they had cast out demons in the name of God. They had done many wonders in the name of God. Are these profound and powerful experiences? I wasn't there. I don't know what happened, but I know this. It wasn't what they thought. You see, they stood before Jesus and argued with Him because of their experiences. And they thought their experiences demonstrated they were right with God. But Jesus said, notice, He did not say, I knew you once when you were doing these things, but you fell away. He says, I never knew you. These were not people who were ever a part of His family. These were not people who had ever done anything by His power. Had they prophesied in His name? No, they hadn't. He never knew them. Had they cast out demons in His name? Absolutely not. He never knew them. Had they done many wonders in His name? No, He never knew them. What was their problem? The problem was that they put personal experience above the law that they weren't following. He said, you have practiced lawlessness. They didn't follow the standard. Personal experiences are not the standard. Our parents are not the standard. It may well be that your parents are on the straight and narrow path. They're doing absolutely everything the way God wants them to do. But they're still not the standard. It is your job to honor and obey your parents. But God doesn't want any of us to follow our parents into hell if that's where they're going. And we need to remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, he said, "...knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold..." from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. If what we're following is simply the tradition of our family, guess what Peter calls it? 
aimless conduct. But Jesus died to redeem us from that. He sacrificed Himself for us. And notice what it says in verse 22 of 1 Peter 1, Since you have obeyed your soul... Excuse me. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Our parents are not the standard. The Word of God is the standard. The majority is not the standard. You remember what it says in Matthew chapter 7? Verse 13 and 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Oh, I'm so amazed at the number of people who claim to be following just the Word of God, and you show them a verse and says, look, that means... You're not saved unless you've been baptized for the remission of your sins. And how many of them will say, well, wait a minute. If you're saying that, then all those thousands of people who have been saved in all those crusades, that means they're wrong. Okay. Maybe that's what it means. If God's standard says they're wrong, then they're wrong. It doesn't matter how many are doing it. The majority is not the standard. God's Word is the standard. And we need to believe it and accept it, no matter what the consequences of that faith are. And finally, religious leaders are not the standard. And whether, regarding religious leaders, you think preacher, elder, or Bible class teacher, or pastor, or priest, or bishop, or pope, or convention, I don't care. What we need to understand is there's no man who is our standard, no matter how religious and no matter how great a leader or group of leaders they may be, they are not the standard. Think about Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. In Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, here is a man who by his tricks demonstrated all kind of power. In fact, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 9, it says there was a certain man called Simon, Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. But when Philip came in preaching the gospel, even he had to repent of his wickedness and submit to Christ. Or I think about Apollos, a sincere man, not a trickster. A man who wanted to preach the gospel, but it says in Acts chapter 18 and verse 24 that a certain Jew named Apollos, Acts 18:24, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Here was a man that was eloquent. He was mighty in Scripture. He was accurate on so many things, but he didn't know the truth about baptism. He had to be taken aside and taught the way of God more accurately. What about the men in Acts 15 that came from the oldest first church going out teaching that you had to be circumcised to be saved? They were wrong. 
This is not a question of honesty or dishonesty. This is not a question of sincerity or insincerity. This is a question of are they teaching the Word of God because that's the standard. The issue is not how religious they are. The issue is not how trustworthy they are. The issue is are they teaching God's Word? If they're not, then they're wrong. No matter how good they are. Because God's Word is the standard. These things are not our standard. God is our standard. And He has revealed Himself through His Son. His Son left behind the witnesses that through the Spirit have written this Word so that we can know what we ought to do in the church and in our lives. Let's live by this standard. Would you pull out your songbooks, please?